Welcome to Sunny in Dunny, hosted by Miss Carney and Miss Galbraith. On this podcast, we're going to discuss all things health and well-being and delve into the lives of our guests from all walks of life. So get on your trainers, plug in your headphones and get out walking whilst listening to our podcast. We're always looking for inspirational guests, so if you know anyone, please tweet or email us. Hello and welcome back to episode four of Keeping It Sunny and Dunny. What a success last week's episode was with Brad, so thank you to everyone who liked, shared and subscribed. Before we get started, we want to say a huge well done and shout out to Charlotte and S3 for winning the jingle competition. I must say it's been constantly playing in my head for the last week. I think this means it's a success. Today we have former DGS Rugby Development Officer, Rugby Player and most recently Ambassador for Marie Curie, Alzheimer's Scotland and Injured Players Foundation, Chris Laidlaw. So hi Chris, we see that you've been super busy with publicity for your new challenge, you've been talking to BBC Radio, sharing your story far and wide, so thank you so much for coming on and giving up your time to talk to us. Um, First of all, I think we should start with just you telling us a little bit about yourself and some achievements to date. Sure, no worries. Um, firstly, good to be a part of the podcast. Um, you are doing a good job with it, so um, it's quite quite inspiring. So, yeah, good job. Um, my name's Chris Laidlaw. I'm born and raised in Jedburgh on the Scottish Borders, um, just a small town of about, I think, 4,500 people now. Um, so, yeah, I was I was born in Melrose, but all my life uh, was in Jed until I was about um, 20. I left to go to New Zealand for a couple of years, so... Um, but up until that point, all my time was in Jed. I'm one of three boys, so I have two older brothers. Um, one's 10 years older and one's 13 years older. So as you can imagine, growing up, um, there was um, two older brothers looking out for me, but more importantly, keeping me in check. Um, <laughs> so that was pretty pretty cool growing up. Um, I have two kids. So I've got a little daughter, Ivy, one a little boy, Struan, who just turned three yesterday, actually. So... Um, that's been keeping me pretty busy, as you can imagine. Uh, married to a wife, Alana. So, um, in terms of achievements, obviously rugby has been a huge part of my life. So, um, a few rugby achievements would be representing the borders under eighteen level, um, represents Scotland club fifteen, um, being capped for them against England down in Birmingham. Um, funny, well, maybe we've not got time for that story, but. Um, it was one of the hairiest um, flights I've ever had um, before we played that game. So it was during one of the big storms uh, during sort of Six Nations times. But um, yeah, one, definitely one of the hairiest, hopefully the last hairiest flight I'll ever have. Um, and then I transitioned to Burmuir, so a couple of achievements there. We won the, the Scottish Cup in my first season there, which would have been 2014-15. Um, so that was a pretty cool year to be part of the club and um, being my first year, I thought this this is pretty good. Um, maybe not as successful post that, um, and then sort of the last last two years, pretty successful. Um, seven season with with Barmuir winning two two events in the borders and getting to two finals. So um, they'd be they'd be some of the big ones that jump out. Um, a few other little ones along the way, but um, yeah, as I said, rugby's been quite a big part of my life. So those are the ones that jump out. Amazing, a lot of achievements. And um, so going back to your school days, where did you? go to school um, and what would you say you were like as a teenager what were your aspirations did you always want to be a rugby player or did you have other aspirations as well yeah so I went to a little primary school called Howden Burn um, it's not actually there anymore they've, they've, they've amalgamated both primary schools and the secondary school into one big campus in Jed now so um, so it's been flattened just recently which is quite sad oh, that's um, sad <laughs> and, uh, and then I transitioned from there to, to Jedburgh Grammar School um, again, which is not on the site anymore that, that when I was there. So um, two two really good schools, lots of good memories, um, lots of really good sort of role model teachers. They were a lot of them from the community. Um, so you would always be bumping into them, um, which probably made you <laughs> behave a little bit more because you knew <laughs> that um, they, they maybe pick you up on the street when you're out with your mum and dad. Or, um, so but lots of good memories. Um Lots, lots of teachers that probably, you know, gave me a lot of, of what, I, what I'm about now and a lot of the drive and ambition that I, that I maybe have. So, And then in terms of goals and aspirations, I probably didn't, I didn't look too far ahead when I was that age. I think I was, 
very much in the moment. I was extremely competitive um, and probably still am quite quite competitive around certain elements of um, of work and, and playing most recently. But um, I, I probably <laughs> I probably didn't take losing too well when I was when I was a teenager. Um, and I think at times it probably I needed a bit of a, a lesson or, or someone just to pull me aside and explain that it's not always going to be rosy and you're not always going to win. But um, more importantly, taking lessons from from losing would have would have been one thing that would have uh, helped me when I was a teenager. But um, obviously, sport was was always a passion, um, and I played a number of different sports, all you know, football, tennis, golf, um, lawn bowls. Um, and rugby so um you know a lot a lot of sports as a teenager and i think that probably just added to my competitive edge and and wanting to do well and um having two older brothers who were quite successful and um you know i think in a small town you know everyone so it's um yeah i would say as a teenager i was definitely competitive at times probably too competitive especially like i can remember teachers in pe tell me just to dial it down a bit um <laughs> you know playing, playing basketball or something like that and it's you know it was mixed between male and female just going going way too hard um but it's, <laughs> it, um, it's all all life lessons i suppose and um but yeah that that would be a sort of summary around me as a teenager and, and jed so you're obviously pretty driven, but also had like big boots to fill. And um, what would you say were any challenges you faced at school? So that could be academically or socially, or even within like the sports side of things. What were the challenges that you faced? Yeah, I think a big challenge for me was almost the balance between sport and study. Um, like I, I didn't mind school and and growing up. Like I was, I was reasonably bright. Um, if I look back on it now, I think I probably could have applied myself far better to the academics. Um, and I think, again, I, I don't like going back to the small town stuff, but I think I probably got sucked into following my mates a bit and, and being dragged along with them. Um, and I suppose a challenge was just, just be being myself and not necessarily worrying about what they were doing or um, what their ambitions were. And, um, you know, a lot of people left school real early um, to go and pursue apprenticeships and construction. Um, and I actually did the same. Um, at 16, I left school in fourth year and, and went and took up a joiner apprenticeship. And, um, you know, I think looking looking back again, I, I probably would have, um, you know, stayed on a bit longer and challenged myself around academics. And I probably didn't really know what I wanted to do. I think, um, you know, again, that was probably a challenge. I think my, my parents were really, they allowed me a lot of freedom to make decisions. I don't know if that was because I was a third child and they'd gone through that with my two older brothers and they'd maybe learned from their experiences. But I was, you know, I, I made a lot of decisions on my own. I can remember pretty much making my choices for subjects. I made them, showed them to my parents, never really got challenged too hard um, and, and kind of just forged my own way. And then, as I said, left at fourth year. So, I suppose in terms of challenges, definitely trying to balance. I've probably gone the sport route too far in terms of committing to a lot of sports, trying to, you know, arriving at school pretty tired or um, unmotivated. So the balance definitely probably wasn't right. Um, and yeah, just just being comfortable being me and, and whatever that looked like, whether that was academically, sport, socially, um, at that young age in a small town, I was probably quite easily influenced. That's a good insight. Um, you've previously kind of touched on um, your teachers having an impact on like your own practice now. Um, did you have a specific role model or inspiration when you were a teenager? Yeah, it's probably hard to pick one. There, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's probably two or three. So there was a teacher, Mr. Johnston, um, Bill Johnson, who actually worked for Radio Scotland. He was a commentator. He's Bill... Um, Bill McLaren's grandson, so he was a huge part of the school and, and the sport in the school and rugby in the school. He was he was like he used to lead the program, he used to coach, um, he used to come away on games with you, um, and he was just like a really a really good role model in terms of how he how he taught you, how he coached you, the relationship that he had with with the students. Um, a really outgoing, liked a laugh was very firm when he needed to be, had the respect of all the all the students that he taught. Um, probably similar to uh, Mr. Fraser, I would, I would anticipate, at the bar, but um, 
So he, he was probably one that had a big impact on me. Um, he had a really close relationship with my parents. So um, I kind of knew that, you know, I had to, had to stick in and listen and um, be on his sort of good side. But he had a, a real positive effect on me growing up. Um, my brothers probably um, had a big effect on me. They were successful in, in sport and in rugby. Um, my older brother, he's gone on to be a very successful coach. Um, he played professionally. So they were always like positive role models around their sort of behaviours. Um, they worked incredibly hard. They were disciplined. They were committed. Um, so, yeah, definitely learned a lot from them. And then my older cousin, Greg, obviously, he he was he's about three, four years older than me. So we spent a lot of time growing up playing playing in the back garden. Um, again, very competitive between each other. We used to fall out quite regularly around who, who won and who lost. Um, but just seeing him go on and, like, he'll be, he'll be first to admit, he wasn't maybe a superstar, but... His, his work ethic, his commitment, his enthusiasm, his drive, his competitive edge. Um, just seeing him him come through from, he had quite a bad knee injury around 18, 19. And out the back of that, he just, um, you know, worked incredibly hard to stay fit and get back fit and then really kicked on um, to become a really successful and still successful rugby player um, and leader. So, yeah, it's probably not quite close to home, family, big and, you know, big role models, um, which was quite nice to have. No, I was going to say that it's nice that you have um, role mod- models within your family. Um, could you tell us a little bit about where you're at in your career now? Yeah, so right at this, this present moment, I'm working for Scottish Rugby. Um, so I'm employed as an academy coach um, in the Edinburgh Academy, so the Junior Academy in Edinburgh. Um, so that, that job at the moment is, is pretty tough going um, in terms of I'm only doing one day a week. Um, and I got the, I actually got the job during sort of lockdown. So I've actually only been in for a, a week and then furlough. Um, and then I'm now back a day a week and it's all virtual and, and stuff like that. So um, my responsibility in there is basically to, to run the rugby programme for the Junior Academy. We have um, 20 players at the moment from around Edinburgh involved in that academy. Um, and our job basically in there is to try and um, develop those individuals to become professional rugby players. So um, it's it's a very different role to what I've previous, previously been involved in at Dunbar and at Burramuir in the sense that I'm now developing players for the professional game rather than just the amateur club game. So, um, yeah, it's been a shift in focus around performance. and um, But, look, I'm, I'm really excited about it. Um, I'm extremely passionate about coaching and helping players achieve what they want to achieve. Um, I'm just desperate to get, get stuck in and be given the opportunity to get back on the field and coach. Um, I've kind of had to reinvent myself a little bit as a coach over over the lockdown period because it's um, you know you're not on the grass, you're not not coaching. Um, everything's done through Zoom and, and virtual platforms. So um, yeah, it's that's where I'm at, and you know, incredibly excited about what that role is going to be going forward, but. Um, yeah, just hopefully get back to some sense of normality come the summer. Yeah, finger cross, fingers crossed that it's sooner rather than later. Um, so going more specifically into the charity work that you're doing now, um, really sorry to hear about the loss of your mum last year um, from cancer and your dad's diagnosis with Alzheimer's. This must be a pretty tough time for you. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit about how you've dealt with this? Yeah, I'm sure it's yeah, it's it's incredibly um, hard to, to kind of reflect back and think um, that, that mum's not here. I suppose um, I think I probably you know I've given it a lot of thought through the challenge and stuff. I probably didn't deal with it to be honest at the start. Um, I think it happened extremely quick. Um, you know, from mum being diagnosed with a, the terminal cancer to her actually passing away was around twelve weeks. Um, so you know, it happened incredibly fast. It was a huge shock to get the news that she what she had, um, and because it was in lockdown, so um, basically we we stayed away away for nine weeks from when she was diagnosed um, until she started to deteriorate a bit, um, and then we moved ourselves down to Jed um, to be there for the last sort of two three weeks. Um, so you know, pre pre mum passing away was incredibly hard to deal with. Um, and then since since mum's passing in this sort of immediate sort of uh, month to two months, I probably I probably didn't deal with it in a way that I probably shut myself off a little bit, shut myself down, 
didn't want to talk about it and found it incredibly hard to talk about it. Um, and I think, you know, it, it takes a lot of time. Um, and that's, I'm only probably realizing that now that, um, it does, it just takes time to get over or not over it, but come to terms with it. Um, and in terms of sort of, you know, dealing with things, definitely talking to people helps. Um, even, even talking to you guys today helps because, um, you know, it's, it's sharing, it's sharing mum's mum's life and the, the good things that I want to remember about mum. Um, doing the challenge has obviously been a huge focus um, and trying to not deal with it, but almost make a, a positive of it in, in a way and, and give back to the charities that have, that have helped us during the time. Um, and yeah, I think I think talking to people would be one one thing that jumps out as being a way of of coping slash dealing with um, losing someone and, and and finding someone that you want to talk to. I think is really important because I, I find it, you know, I found it incredibly hard to talk to my wife Alana about it um, because she had a, a strong you know a, a really nice relationship with mum, so she was dealing with it as well. And I probably found it easier to talk to someone that maybe wasn't connected to me like a family or, or a friend or that didn't really know mum because I could share, you know, I could share mum's life. I could share the good things that I, I wanted to remember with them. So there was a couple of people involved at Barmuir at the time that I kind of got in touch with and, and just went for walks um, and, and just chatted really. And it was, I, I felt like that helped, helped massively. So, um, you know, if, if anyone is listening that is going through it or has gone through, I think be kind to yourself. It does take time. Um, don't don't rush it and, and in terms of trying to help deal with it definitely talking to people but finding the right people to talk to would be um a bit of advice i think um like talking about bereavement and, and grief is i think it's extremely important it's definitely not talked about enough i think that comes down to people who maybe haven't gone through that experience not really knowing how to talk about it um, yeah. and i think the kind of when it's your first time that you've maybe lost someone really close to you the emotions are just so overwhelming I think that, no, genuinely, I think it's such a, a good thing for, for you to come on and speak about that. The question was going to ask what bit of, what one bit of advice would you give to someone who's lost a loved one? But I'm sure you've kind of answered quite a lot of that already. Yeah, I think that, you know, the talking and, and seeking the right people to talk to, I think maybe trying to find someone or a, or a group or that have gone through a similar experience is massively beneficial. Um, whether that's you know pre someone passing away with a terminal illness that you can maybe um, you know talk to around you know what's going to happen, um, especially if they're they're staying at home or they're going into hospital. What what does the care look like? You know emotional support. Um, I think leaning on someone that's gone through a similar experience can be hugely beneficial to you, and um, they can share things that they've maybe felt or they did um, that can shape the way that you you maybe go about dealing with um, losing someone, absolutely. Yeah. Um, after listening to your BBC Radio Scotland, um, kind of a little bit on that, I realised that we've actually gone through a very similar situation because I cared for my gran for six weeks at home prior to her passing due to cancer as well. Um, and we could not have done it without Marie Curie. They, by the sounds of things, kind of done a very similar thing. They came in and done the night shifts and everything. Um, they were just unbelievable. So could you explain how they kind of eased the process for you and your family um, through that time? Yeah, sure. Um, I, th- I suppose firstly, I didn't, I didn't understand the Marie Curie. It wasn't just sort of terminal cancer patients. It's any terminal illness that they, they can come in and support. So that was, I've sort of learned that through starting the challenge and having re- you know, much more regular conversations with their staff. And um, so, you know, it's, it's amazing the support that they, they do provide. Some of the, I suppose, the examples that I would that, that I hold close around what they've done. Um, you know, look, they're doing this time and time again. I think that's really important to make people aware. Like these individuals are dealing with with death and and looking after people at home and um, fam, you know, supporting families time and time again. It's whereas you know, for us, it, fingers crossed, it's a one-off experience and nothing I would wish on my worst enemy. But um, the, the night the night shift stuff around that I think was the, it feels like the world's almost sleeping at night doesn't it like if you're up and it, it's not you can't maybe message a friend talk to family speak to doctors um, so I think having someone in the house who has been through this experience who is 
able to, you know, have a conversation with mum, with us, was really reassuring and almost gave us a a bit of a safety net um, around around that night time. So that was hugely, hugely beneficial to us as a family. They would do simple things like make cups of tea where, you know, all all we wanted to do through the night and for those last few weeks was sit sit with mum, talk with mum, cuddle mum, um, and, and they just made it easy to do that because they, they took took away all that stress. Um, they'd done a lot of communicating with external people, so doctors, nurses, um, district nurses that were coming in to help as well. So again, we didn't have to worry about retaining information or um, communicating with those peoples, um, again, which was, was really helpful for us. Um, and then I suppose like just allowing like us to maybe have a sleep um, or letting dad go up to bed and have a sleep and knowing that someone was there with mum and should, should they need to come and get us, they could do that. So, um, you know, it's, it's support. It, it was caring for mum. You know, mum was bed bound, so she couldn't, she couldn't move. So they were moving mum. They were getting her to sit up and, um, you know, until she could, she wasn't able to eat and drink. They were giving her food and helping her drink. So, there's that, there's that side of what they do. They care for the individual patient, um, but the emotional support and, um, you know, that they give the family around that is just, yeah, I think that's probably the big one that, that jumps out to me and um, and one of the massive reasons why I want to give back. I just think what they do time and time again is just incredible. Um, yeah. yeah, their work it does sound amazing and such a comfort to families. Um, so moving on to the second charity that you're running for for Alzheimer's Scotland. Um, so Chris, since your dad's diagnosis with Alzheimer's, what kind of toll has that taken on you? Yeah, it was again similar to when Mum passed. We, as a you know three boys, I think we didn't really want to accept it. Um, you know that it's your dad. He's kind of you always think they're a bit indestructible, don't you? At times, um, but. Yeah, it took, took us a while to probably accept that this was happening to Dad. It took him a while, I think, to come to terms with um, being diagnosed with, with Alzheimer's, which is a form of dementia and memory loss. So, um, yeah, it, it, it's been tough um, and I think made even tougher losing mum. She, to be fair, she, she bore a lot of the, the brunt of it at the start. Um, I think, you know, Dad found it hard and probably, um, you know, spending 24 7 mum was in the house she found it quite hard to deal with um at the outset so um and for for me i suppose you know it's the the hard part is you you you're losing a bit of your your dad around you know if he's he's losing the memories that he maybe had or um albeit he he is doing pretty well at the moment he he's um he's, he's reading a lot he's trying to stimulate his brain he's trying to remember you know, he's reading books that when he played um, played rugby and stuff. So he's going back and um, and trying to really kind of stimulate his his memories, his brain. Um, but yeah, emotionally for us, definitely didn't want to accept it at the start. It's taken a long time. I think a, a bit of a turning point around it was um, he kind of came public with it. So um, just after, you know, not long after mum passed away, to be honest, he, he came public with his diagnosis because up until that point, like we knew obviously as a family, but externally, um, you know, in the town, you know, as, as ex sort of players and stuff, they didn't really know. They probably knew that something wasn't quite right. Um, he was forgetting people's names, um, maybe talking about the same thing quite a lot. Um, but since coming public with it, I think it's it's helped massively for for him because people are now aware of, of what he's going through and, and they've been able to support him in a far far better way and um and i think for us as a family it, it gives us that bit of reassurance that everyone knows nobody's kind of embarrassed to, to sort of um make assumptions or um maybe think you know why is roy you know what's wrong with him today is he forgot or um so that for for us i think has been a big turning point and there's been a lot of support come through you know alzheimer's scotland obviously they, they've been They've been really good at pinpointing us um, in the direction of people for support, um, groups for support, resources. Um, so you know, again, co- coming out with that diagnosis has has been really, 
really quite powerful and I think it's helped Dad massively kind of deal with what he's going through and for us as a family being able to support him far better. That's good to hear that he has got so much support. Um, so just a little bit of a stat actually, um, Alzheimer's affects 1 in 14 people over the age of 65 in the UK so there's a good chance that the majority of people or people listening will know someone that is suffering from it. Um, do you have any advice for someone who maybe has a loved one or someone that they know that has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's or dementia? Yeah, absolutely. I think it probably it's quite closely aligned with, with mum as well. Finding people that have gone through um, similar experiences. So when we come on to the Murrayfield injured players, I'll probably touch on that as well. It, um, because someone that's gone through something before just has so many, um, you know, whether they're positive, negative, whether they work for them or not, I think it's really good to hear um, maybe sort of techniques or processes that they've they done that they found helped, whether that's for dad himself or whether that's for us as a family to be able to support dad. Um, I think, you know, asking questions of, um, you know, of doctors, I think, you know, we were probably a bit reluctant to keep keep pushing and keep prodding and keep asking, but don't, don't be afraid. It's... Um, you know, you, you need to be really informed around what's going on um, so that ultimately we can we can support dad in the right way. There's no point in us supporting dad in a way that he doesn't need the support. Um, you know, he's, he's got a few little techniques now that, that are working really well around him. He has a note on the back door around what he needs to take out with him. So every time he goes out the door, um, he's able to, to look at that note and, and take out with him what he needs to take out. Um, encouraging him to take notes around who he's speaking to during the day so that he can have conversations with with myself and my brothers around who he's been talking to what he's what's he been talking about um and, and getting a really you know honest support network around them so his ex the players that he played with um back in the day have been have been really outstanding in terms of just getting around them um they've they're striking up you know they play golf quite regularly together now They'll phone dad regularly, um, and he, he really he's really enjoying talking about sort of um, when he played and stuff like that again. Whereas he, he didn't do much of that um, previously. I think you know he had his time. He played and didn't really didn't really talk about it as much um, until maybe Six Nations came around and they, they brought up games from the past or that. But um, yeah, just a, a really good. And, and the reason I say honest is someone that they're not sort of sugarcoating stuff either. They're, they're telling it how it is. Um, I think, you know, you, you need you need that honest feedback because um, other, otherwise it's just there's no, there's no point. We, we want to hear what's happening, uh, the truth, and, and being able to help that as, as much and as best as we can. That's some really good advice. Um, you previously just touched on there. Um, so your final charity um, through this challenge is the Murrayfield Injured Players. Um, that's obviously a little bit different to the other two. So, um, what was your reasoning for picking that one? I think oh, there, there's quite, there's a few reasons behind this one. So, um, firstly, a lot of people probably don't know they exist for a start. Um, so they they are, they are part of Scottish rugby um, and have have existed in a for for a long time. And and their sort of primary sort of vision or goal is to assist rugby players who have had either catastrophic injuries. Who, who need long-term support, whatever that may look like, in-house, um, you know, mobility staff, um, and also shorter-term injuries, you know. Um, and myself and my older brother, Scott, actually both got financial support um, through the foundation when we were injured. So we both had um, shoulder surgery when we were uh, injured playing and off work for a prolonged period of time. So the they, they provided financial support to us after a sort of four to six week period, um, which for, for me at the time, probably I probably didn't appreciate it as much as, as my brother because I was still living at home. Um, whereas my, my brother, Scott, he was actually out of the house in his own place. Um, so that financial support was huge for him around being able to pay, pay mortgage, buy food, pay bills. Um, so yeah, that, that's, that's sort of a, a brief summary around what they do. The, the next reason is um, it was mum's wish around um, after she passed that the memorial collection went to the Murrayfield injured players. Um, now, that, that came as a big shock to us, or a, not a shock, a surprise, because as you can imagine, growing up in a house where her husband played you know international rugby for a long period of time, 
and then our three boys playing rugby. She was sick of it. She um, <laughs> she wasn't a huge fan of rugby. Um, I think she she loved what we got out of it, um, and that probably summed up her as a person. She was all about other people. Um, but yeah, it really surprised us that, that that's what she wanted done with the money because, as I said, she you know rugby played a huge part in her life, but she was she was never hugely interested in it. Um, so for her to do that, I think really resonated with me um, around her sort of personality, and I think made me want to want to give a little bit to them as well. Um, and the and the last thing is there's a, an individual named Eddie Rennick who who's from Jedburgh, and he had a catastrophic injury when he was um, 17 year old, I think. So he was still under 18. Um, he played in the front row and was involved in a collapsed scrum, um, and has has been in a wheelchair ever since. So. And, and they've they've been a, a huge help to Eddie um, around putting aids in the house, just supporting him. Um, when I played at Jed, Eddie was always at every game. Um, he was a huge part of the club. Um, his family have actually they donated a large sum of money to the to my challenge. So um, that that probably was another big a big driver around why I wanted to give back to Murrayfield injured players. And um, it's it's you know three three charities that mean a, a heck of a lot to me. Um, and my family so um, it's, a, it's a really strong purpose I've got loads of strong whys why I'm doing it um, and yeah that's that's the reason behind Murrayfield injured players That's so lovely and you can see with the way you're talking that it's obviously you're so passionate about these charities um, which which makes it even even better um, yeah. so your challenge itself is 12 marathons in 12 months could you tell us a little bit more about that and why you're doing that specifically to raise money and awareness yeah, because I'm mad. <laughs> um, but the the marathon started. I I'd never run a marathon. The longest I'd run was a half marathon. I think 2012 when I was in New Zealand, um, and and I think that that in itself running one marathon kind of excited me a little bit. It was a challenge because I'd never done it before. I was very naive, <laughs> I have to admit, around a marathon because um, I, don't, I don't know what I was what I was thinking. But until we we basically myself and the two others who who, who have been kind of training alongside and who who done the first one and are doing the second one with me, um, we only gave ourselves about four or five weeks before the first one, um, and I think we thought because we'd kind of played rugby, we're reasonably fit. Um, that we'd be okay, um, but I can assure you that we we done we done a bit of training and we ran a twenty kilometer and a thirty kilometer before the first marathon, and those two runs were were nearly as hard as the marathon itself. The thirty kilometer um, we done it along the canal and back was just incredibly tough. So I think up until that point, I thought you know it won't be that difficult. I'm, I'm reasonably fit; I'll be able to do this. But then, then that came, and I think I thought, wow, this is going to be huge in terms of the whole year. So the first reason, because I'd never done a marathon before, I thought that's a good thing to do. Um, obviously, during lockdown, COVID, it's about the only thing that you can do, isn't it, in terms of getting out running. And um, one of the good things to come of it is being able to go out running at the moment with only one other and other individual. But um, just being able to go out and run and have a conversation with someone's been really good. Um, and connecting with loads of different people um, who who are maybe just out running, want to go out running, want to help support me in my training um, has been a huge positive. But um, I suppose I, I, I am now finished playing um, and I thought I've got a bit of time on my hands this year around training. Um, why not make it the whole year and go sort of the 12 and 12 had quite a nice ring to it. Um, and yeah, I think, I think the, the concern for me is just the duration of it being the whole year. Um, one staying fit for the whole the whole time, um, and and being able to kind of keep the volume in the legs and, and keep getting out and doing little bits between the marathons. Um, I have to say I'm a bit a bit apprehensive between this one on Sunday and the next one because I'm only going to have a maximum of four weeks, where I've had eight weeks between the first one and this one, so that the, they're going to come pretty thick and fast for the rest of the year. So, um, but look, there's. There's plenty, you know, Kevin Sinfield, seven and seven is pretty inspirational. If he can do seven and seven days, then, you know, I, I need to get my head around doing one a month. So I'm pretty sure I can, um, you know, mentally get in, get in the right spot for doing that. So, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sounds like madness, but really good at the same time. Um, it's called a challenge for a reason. 
Uh, what has been the one hardest aspect of it? Um, the emotions. Um, the reasons I'm doing it. The, the first, I'll never forget finishing that first one on the 1st of January. Just like overcome with emotion. Um, physically, I was exhausted. Um, it's by far the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, and physically, the last the last 15 kilometers were you know, just so painful in the legs. Um, I remember running through the meadows um, on the sort of third and the fourth loop of that first one. And it was quite busy because it was the first of January. People were out having a walk. And just trying to navigate past people was so hard. Like changing, even just shifting direction, like, I don't know, 10 centimetres just felt so hard. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, the emotions has definitely been the hardest thing. I think when, when you run any long distance, um, it's as much a mental challenge as it is physical. And I think what, what, what happens is your mind starts to wander as you get tired. Um, and because of the reasons I'm doing it, my mind wanders to, to those things. So thinking about mum, thinking about those sort of last few days, they're still quite, quite, um, you know, stark memories. They're quite at the forefront of my head. Um, so that, that has definitely been the hardest thing to, because you've got to be so careful that the emotion doesn't drain you, whether that's draining you before you even start or draining you through the running. Um, because it can just have such a negative effect on you, on your body. And, um, so without shadow of doubt, that's been the one thing that has been hard and, and will continue to be hard throughout the year because that those memories aren't going to go away. The purpose why I'm doing it's not going to go away. Um, physically I'll get, I'll get better at the running. Um, absolutely. But yeah, that's, that's going to be the real, the real challenge around the whole thing. Um, you've touched on that your second marathon is coming up this Sunday. Um, so how are you mentally and physically preparing for it? And then how does that kind of differ to preparing for a game of rugby? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. And I suppose until I started training for it, I didn't really appreciate the, the difference in sort of long distance, um, maintaining a, a steady pace for a long period of time. You know, in rugby, it's very anaerobic. It's very intense for short periods of time very physical um, obviously the, the contact side of the game so um, in terms of preparing for for the marathon physically is it a lot of running whether that's shorter runs um, maybe at a little bit of a faster pace per kilometre or um, so on Saturday I did done my last long run so we completed 23 kilometres last Saturday and I think you know this is a little bit off topic but around the training that's the hardest part like everyone's seeing the marathons mm-hmm. um but maybe not necessarily appreciating what's going in prior to, to the actual marathon itself. So we're still clocking up a lot of a lot of kilometers in a week, um, and and even that twenty three k last Saturday was tough. You know, it's the last three k. It was we ran it pretty fast. I think we averaging around five minutes twenty two a kilometer. So it was a lot faster than maybe what we've done in the past. So um, so physically, definitely, you just got to keep we're keeping running. Um, and making sure like a lot of stretching, a lot of foam rolling. Um, my Achilles probably feel it the most, Achilles calves. Um, so staying on top of that stuff so that that doesn't become an issue um, and hamper one, being able to do training during the weeks and two, the marathons themselves. Um, I think, you know, mentally, how am I preparing for this one? I'm probably looking back to the first one and using that as you know that experience having gone through it um nutritionally probably didn't get quite right on the first one fell a bit short felt really hungry the last 10k and didn't have snacks um on me for the last 10k felt a bit thirsty ran out of um juice in my camel back so um there's there's experiences that we've gone through that will help shape the way we prepare for this one um but yeah it, it's massively different in terms of um towards rugby like I suppose rugby, you're trying to get a, a certain level of arousal before you play that you're going to have to smash people. Um, now, I didn't smash people because I'm small <laughs> and play stand off, but um, you, still have to ta- you still have to tackle people and, and be ready for that physical confrontation. Um, you know, marathon running and long distance running, it's basically you in the road um, and, and you've got to go after it. So, um, yeah, it, it's been a huge shift for me, um, both from a training point of view and from a sort of mental preparation point of view. You can see how much support you already have, um, having just one marathon in the bag already um, on your social media. This is probably a difficult question to ask, but um, have you got a number one supporter? Or maybe it's more than one person, I suppose. Uh, 
but it's 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 three. So my my wife Alana, she's been um, nothing short of incredible, really. I think she she's not into running, so I, I don't anticipate she'll probably join. Um, I keep I keep challenging her around, maybe doing five k <laughs> or something like that. So um, she's got a year, maybe she will. But um, I think she she's doing a lot behind the scenes, so she's doing a lot of social media stuff. Um, on, on the marathons themselves so I, I try and take some photos or videos but I just send them direct to her and she's putting them out um, she's making up some little videos we've actually got a video hopefully going out today which we'll talk about Marie Curie um, from from me and my brothers um, some photos um, so hopefully that'll go out today if not tomorrow so um, she's doing all that she's sitting behind the scenes doing that um, and then my two kids I suppose she's she's looking after them to allow me to go out and run um, she on the, on the first marathon they they were at Megatland from you know half past nine we started at ten right through until we finished and um, so I think just just having having her you know being behind the challenge itself like she she was a big driver of saying go for it do it because um, I wasn't quite sure if it was the right time or if it was too soon or um, but yeah she she gave me the confidence I suppose to go and do it so yeah they, she she's been huge. Um, and you know we've we've gone through through a lot in the in a space of a year. Um, losing mum, dad being diagnosed. Um, we had Ivy just after mum passed away, about four six weeks after mum passed away. So she lost her gran at the start of the year as well. So she she she's gone through a hell of a lot too. So um, have, you know she's been a huge support and has continued to support the challenge and will do for the for the whole year. So she she's definitely the number one um, supporter for sure. Um, so we're going to go on to the questions from the listeners. Um, so we've asked some some listeners around the school and, and on Twitter, and we've had quite a lot back, actually. So we picked our kind of favourite ones to ask. So this is a question from Ewan at DGS. Uh, he's a pupil. Uh, what has been your best moment as a coach so far? Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> uh, that, it's, a, it's a great question in terms of... Uh, I probably don't stop and reflect enough, I, I think you sometimes get caught you know in the moment day to day I think that's one positive of COVID that's probably allowed me to stop and think and, and reflect a little bit so um as a coach oh keeping it in Dunbar I think one one that jumps out would be the, the under 16s when they won the Scottish Shield um I think it was 2019 I'd just kind of left my post at Dunbar but um I remember being invited back to kind of speak to the boys before they played um, and go and watching them playing on the back pitches out at Orium. Um, and, and I don't take any, you know, I was a very small part of their, their journey. Um, you know, they had, you know, Neil Thompson, um, Ian Samuels, um, who, who had been with that group right through mini rugby. But um, for me, when I first came into the role at Dunbar, that group of players were just coming in the first year. Um, and there were such a committed group of players. Um, and I suppose, you know, managing to put some additional skills and a, a good sort of S&C programme around them, and that was delivered by Brad, actually, was was outstanding. Um, I think that, as a, as a coach, and I, I don't like to take credit because I think we, we all play small parts in, in a player's journey or a team's journey, um, but that's, that's definitely one that jumps out. Um, I think my roles, like I've not really been involved in team coaching as such. Like I've done a little bit in East Lothian with with sort of representative teams, but my role's always been about the individual um, as as part of the team game, obviously, but trying to develop that individual to be as good a player as they can be. And I think you know that that group of players, especially, they, they were so committed, each and every one of them, that 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 was kind of the the end goal. And they were they were so close to actually being in that cup final. Um, and, and, and they probably deserve to be. The, they were a really talented group of, group of players, but not just talented, committed, hardworking. Um, you know, they loved they loved sort of the, the environment. They loved being around each other. Um, so yeah, as a as a coach and keeping it in Dunbar, that's definitely one that would um, that I would single out from my, my coaching journey so far. Hopefully, hopefully there'll be a few more along the way, and that'll not be the last. But. Um, I take great pleasure in, in coaching and get a lot of satisfaction out of players doing well. Um, you know, it's there's many other sports out there that people can play, and we've got to make sure that rugby um, remains one that people want to do. And um, you know, there's loads of chat around the sport at the moment. Obviously, you'll see it like concussion and that. But you know, having having been involved in in rugby all my life, I think it, 
so many good things to come out of it and and, and hopefully I can I can get that across to the players that I coach and and give give back that way and, and they can have as enjoyable if not more and a more successful journey than me and um, but yeah good question from you and I don't know don't know what you in but um, yeah that that's definitely one that jumps out. Oh, that's a nice one. Um, your next one comes from Scott Marnick. Um, so, do you think the standard of rugby is better now than that of the standard of when your dad was playing? <laughs> is, that, is that because Scott played in that era as well? <laughs> that's maybe why. <laughs> he'll, he'll be wanting me to say that the standard was better in, in those days. Um, oh, there's comparisons made a lot, isn't there, around sort of sport in years gone by and sport now and, and looking at rugby, look, players are definitely more um, technically and tactically the standard I would say is, is much better now. And like uh, if I used to have these conversations with dad and he would say, he, he would probably agree, I think around that, but um, you know, he would, he would not change it for the, he would, if you asked him when, when would he want to play? He would, he would have, he wouldn't have wanted to play now. Um, he might have enjoyed the money now because when he played, he was amateur. But um, he, so I think, yeah, the, the standard now is from a technical tactical point of view is, is better, and the, um, the the games change massively. Like if you watch clips from sort of eighties, nineties to now, the game was so different. Um, but you know, just because players are better now, it doesn't mean necessarily that it's it's more entertaining. You know, I think I still watch some of those those games when my old man played and. And some of the tries were just incredible. Some of the tackling was woeful. Don't get me wrong, but um, <laughs> so yeah, like for an answer, I, I think it for me, and this is just my opinion, that the technical tactical stuff is definitely better now. And with the game being fully professional for a long period, um, and, and players committing, you know, it's their job now. Ultimately, when my dad dad played, he was he was working all week, and then um, used to go and play at the weekend, or they used to go into Scotland camp maybe on a Thursday, and he'd have to take holidays or. Um, there's a famous story around him winning the Grand Slam on the Saturday and back to, to wire public toilets on the Monday because he's an electrician. So, <laughs> oh um, you know, it's so different, so different. But, um, yeah, I think I think definitely standards better. But as I said, it doesn't make it any more entertaining. OK, the next question, we love this question, um, and it's from DGS's very own Paul Sutherland. I think this gives you a good opportunity to add some pressure on some people to join in. Um, if you could pick any four people, famous or not, to run the next four marathons with you, who would it be? Oh, wow. Um, you caught, caught me off guard with this one, I have to say. Um, <laughs> look, I think, look, looking at Dunbar, and because it's come from Mr Sutherland, um, <laughs> he, he'd definitely be one. I think he, he always chats up or talks up around how how much running he's doing and how fit he is and he's been at the gym so look I think he has, he has to put his, his money where, where his mouth is and join in join in one definitely we agree um, he, I think I, I would love to do one in East Lothian so maybe he could uh, come up with a route in East Lothian and we um, we could maybe start somewhere and finish in Dunbar that would be awesome um, that would be amazing well I think Scott, Scott Marnock Mr Marnock would be another I think what even on his bike, I think um, you know maybe running running that distance. Some people just wouldn't be able to manage. But I'm not saying that that Scott couldn't manage. But um, yeah, those two from Dunbar. Um, I, I'm thinking about this in terms of like on a marathon being picked up. Like I really really enjoy Kevin Bridges as a comedian. So, <laughs> that would be a good um, one. That I, would I be good. That would be awesome having someone like being able to crack some jokes and um, have some stories and. And, and the last one is, I, I don't know why this has come to my head just now, but through through January, obviously, there was the, the Dodi Aid, um, and there was, so Ali McCoist, um, mm-hmm. so he was involved in a, a few different um, sort of virtual, you know, events through through that sort of Dodi Aid, and it was, he was just brilliant. He had so many funny stories, um, he was just, I could have listened to him all day, to be honest, so... Um, you know, I think I'm, I've never been like a huge football fan, but I've, I've I've played the game. But just listening to him in, in January, I thought, wow, what a, I used to watch him on Question of Sport all the time, and used to, used to love it. So, um, yeah, two two from Dunbar and then Kevin Bridges and Ali McCoy. So it's that'd be that'd be a I don't know an interesting four, I think. But, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> love that. 
Um, so we're into our final questions um, and these are the ones that we ask everybody. Um, do you have any strategies or advice for anyone that's maybe struggling throughout lockdown? Um, yeah, look, I think I was listening to Brad's um, one last week and I think what he said was struck a chord with me. Like everyone's different. Um, and yeah, I think routine, having some sort of framework or structure around your days can be really beneficial. So, and that can be as simple as like, um, you know, a time to get out of your bed or what you're maybe having for breakfast or when you're going to go out a walk or, um, you know, for the students out there, when you're going to do do your work, you know. Um, and I think ha having that to kind of get up in the morning for can can have a real positive effect around having a, produ a productive day, um, having an enjoyable day, you know, feeling feeling good about yourself um, because ultimately it is about you and um, it's, you know, what, what someone's doing. Um, I think, again, Brad alluded to, like, social media. What, what some people are doing... Um, on the surface looks brilliant but you don't really get the full picture um so but i think routine and you know we're all used to routine aren't we like that that's a big thing that i've struggled with like i, I love my job and and even having that removed from you can be a real challenge um not not having rugby training um in the summer just gone like it was it's a huge challenge isn't it um but routine routine and having some sort of plan i think can can help um I think staying connected with the people that, that matter, um, you know, I, I think I've found this really difficult this time around, like just, just staying in touch with people. I think we're all a bit jaded by, by lockdowns. We're all a bit, um, you know, wanting things to return to, to normal as, as fast as it can. We're getting probably a bit more impatient. We know the vaccine's there, but, um, you know, getting that news yesterday probably didn't give us the lift that we're anticipating. Um, but, but speaking to people that are that are positive, um, that, that can have a positive effect, a positive influence on you, um, and that might be a friend, it might be a teacher, um, you know, maybe a coach. Who, who knows? But um, I think it's hard to stay connected. Um, but I think you know, routine connection, and, and maybe some like small achievable goals through your days, through your weeks, can can really help you get through this. Um, and again, small achievable goals could be, you know, having your breakfast, having Weetabix for breakfast, making your, you know, getting the food in for lunch the day before or going a, going a brisk walk or whatever it might be. Something that's achievable, making your bed in the morning when you get out. Something as simple as that sets your day up to, to be quite a productive um, productive day. So um, I'm, I'm by no means, you know, I've, I've struggled with it through through different times. So, um, but I've found those things definitely to have a, a positive effect on me so that's some really good advice and finding what works for you um if you could go back in time and give your younger self some wisdom or bits of advice um what would it be there's probably two one one being listen more um <laughs> i think you know you talk about having two two ears and one mouth so um <laughs> And it wasn't like a negative thing for me, but I think, um, you know, listening to, to the right people at the right time, um, whether that was parents, whether it was my brothers, teachers, coaches, um, you know, family, and it, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't knock on and have a severe effect on what I did or um, my sort of careers or stuff like that. But um, it's something I'm very conscious of now is in my job is the ability to listen. Um, I'm, I'm, as you probably know, very good at talking, um, as we've been talking for quite a while, but um, the, the ability to listen to people and listen to people with real intent um, so that you can either help them or, um, you know, coach them better is is something that I would have instilled in my younger self. Um, and another one's being patient. Um, I'm, I'm probably guilty. I'm still a little bit guilty of wanting, wanting things done in the here and the now. Um, and COVID, COVID, COVID has challenged that massively because there's not much you can do really. Um, so yeah, definitely telling my younger self that it takes time and it could be a week, two weeks, a month, a year, five years. Um, I probably always wanted to be be like the best now rather than thinking about, um, and that probably links into listening, pro 
probably people told me that, um, Chris, you're not going to play for Scotland or you're not going to uh, be an outstanding golfer now, but you've got to understand that the work you're doing now will, will rub off in you know, a year, two years, three years' time. So, um, again, these are probably two things that I, that I think about a lot um, now even. Um, so, yeah, I definitely, if I could instill them in myself a bit younger, then I might be in a, a stronger position now. But, um, yeah, li- listen and being patient would be would be two things that I would tell my younger self, I think. They're really good bits of advice. Um, and finally... If our listeners would like to support um, your challenge and help with fundraising um, in any way, where's the best place for them to keep up to date and to find that? Yeah, so I've got a Just Given page that's the page for donating to the challenge itself. Um, we've set ourselves, so at the outset, we set ourselves a target of raising £3,000. Now, we're, we're quite well over that. We're about 5500 Um and, and money's not been like the, the driver behind this, I think. Look, char- charities are definitely struggling. I was talking to Marie Curie the other day, and they do the Great Daffodil Appeal in, in March. Um, and they were telling me because of COVID and the circumstances and not being able to take their yellow buckets out on streets and stuff like that, they're going to lose about £3 million through that. Oh, gosh. Um, so, look, money is important to them, but it hasn't been like the main driver for doing this challenge for me. Um, but I think... The, the more I get into it, and I was speaking to someone the other day, actually, they said, well, why don't you try and raise 12,000? Um, because you're doing 12 marathons in 12 months. So uh, I think, you know, if we could get anywhere near that, I think I would be extremely proud. Um, we're, we're sitting at five and a half. I've increased it to about eight, I think, at the moment in terms of our next target. Um, but, yeah, people can go into Just Given and Donate. It's just Laidlaw 12 and 12. Um, and at the moment, it's just through all my personal social media that I'm doing it. So, um Twitter at Laidlaw9 and then uh, Chris Laidlaw10 on Instagram. So on, on Sunday, for example, we'll be, um, there'll be loads of updates on, on Instagram, on stories around um, the start, during, the finish. Um, and we usually put like a little wrap um, video together maybe the next day or the day after that, um, just with some photos and stuff of, of the marathon. So yeah, people can go on and have a look. There's there's videos on there at the moment of the first one. Um and yeah, people can support in loads of different ways. Even just like getting in touch to say, like this is this is brilliant. Um, you know, words of encouragement. Um, coming out on the streets is a big one. Like if people were able to come out and support, because there was a few times on that um, the first marathon, there was people popped up just at the right time. Um, you know, at the sort of brow of a hill or the start of a hill. Um, just being there, I think you know we, we took a lot from from people on the route. Um, so yeah, look. Donations would be brilliant, and, and the charities, you know, would be hugely um, accepting of them, and, and, and a tough time for them has been also. But yeah, just just staying in touch, um, getting out and supporting. Um, I'm trying to plot, you know, marathons in different locations. So yeah, stay up to date with with social media on Twitter and Instagram, and um, yeah, as I said, hopefully I can get down East slowly and do one. That 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 would be really nice. Dunbar gave me a lot. Um, like I loved, I loved my time at, at the school um, and the community. I think it was my first job in rugby, um, and I'll always look back with you know uh, fond fond memories and, and be thankful for the opportunity that I got at the club um, and, the, and the people involved in the club. But uh, more importantly, the, the sort of colleagues in the school and um, you know I, I loved working in the PE base. I loved the team. Um, I think you know I got a lot out of that job. It gave me a lot of lessons that I look back on now. So um, yeah, if I could get down and do one and either start or finish in Dunbar, um, I would love to do that. Yeah, that would be amazing. Um, Chris, thank you so much for coming on to talk to the day today. A lot of people can talk for days about their positive and successful things going on in your, their lives, but it's not easy to talk about you know the harder things that are going on. Um, but you're really putting out a silver lining there for what's happened to you and trying to raise awareness um, on, on the, your chosen charities. So thank you so much for coming on. No problem. Thanks for having me on and good luck with the rest of the podcast. As I said at the start, it's, um, it's quite inspiring what you're doing and I'm sure the students are loving it. So um, yeah, good, job. Good, good work. Thanks. Well, I don't know about you, Miss Galbraith, but that was pretty amazing. I think it's so refreshing talking to someone who can acknowledge going through a hard time but can move forward and make a true impact from it. Yeah, I totally agree. 
I don't know about you, but I thought it was a total emotional roller coaster. So many funny and uplifting aspects, followed by heartfelt honesty. And as I mentioned before, I think it takes someone truly strong to talk about grief so openly and so soon to, to when it happened. And I really hope that this has helped anyone going through bereavement of a loved one. Make sure you keep up to date with Chris's journey on social media and stay tuned on how you can further support his challenge virtually. Yeah, Miss Carney, I have been procrastinating on the old running front for a very long time now, um, but I'm actually excited to get my running shoes back on and help raise awareness and support Chris. So thank you all for listening and please recommend our podcast to a friend. But remember to keep it... Sunny. In... Sunny! If you want to 